Star Wars, The Han Solo Adventures by Brian Daly, read by Alec Bowles. Han Solo and the Lost Legacy 12. By which, Skinks said with a forlorn hope, we may assume you mean only humans? Not quite, Bollocks admitted. They're not really sure what you and First Mate Chewbacca are, but they've concluded they have nothing to lose by sacrificing you. They're discussing procedures now. The Wookiee growled, and Skinks's red eyes glazed. Bollocks, who are these people? Han demanded. They call themselves the Survivors, sir. The signal we picked up was a distress call. They're waiting to be picked up. When I asked them why they didn't simply go to the city, they became very vexed and excited. They harbor a great deal of hatred for the other Dalalshans. I gathered that that animosity is tied up with their religion somehow. They are extreme isolationists. How did you find all this out? Bedore wanted to know. Do they speak any standard? No, sir, the droid replied. They speak a dialect that was prevalent in this section of space prior to the rise of the Old Republic. It was recorded on a language tape in Skinks's material, and Blue Max had stored it along with other information. Of course, I didn't reveal that Max exists. He translated for me in burst signals, and I conducted the conversation. A culture of pre-Republic origins pondered Skinks, forgetting to be scared. Will you forget the homework? snapped Hasty, then turned again to Bollocks. What's all this about sacrifices? Why us? Because they're waiting to be picked up, said the droid. They're convinced that life-form termination enhances the effect of their broadcast. So we stumbled in. A major power boost, mused Han, thinking of all those people who had disappeared in these mountains. When's the big send-off? Late tonight, sir. It has something to do with the stars and is accompanied by a considerable ritual. We've got just one trump card left, Han thought, then said, I think that'll work out just fine. Their captors wasted no food or drink on them, which Han loudly proclaimed an indication that they had fallen into the hands of a low-class outfit. But they still had plenty of time to question bollocks. The Mountain Warren was indeed a large complex, though it apparently housed what Bollocks estimated to be no more than 100 people living in a complicated family clan group. Asked why he had been separated from them all, the droid could only say that the survivors appeared to understand what automata were and held them in some awe. They had been adamant about the need to go forward with the sacrifice, but had bowed to his demands that he be permitted to see his companions. On the details of the sacrifice, Bollocks was less clear. Ceremonial objects and equipment were being moved to the surface even as they spoke. The sacrifice was to take place on the mock-up landing field. Although the droid had been unable to locate the confiscated weapons, the captives decided that any attempt at escape would have a better chance of success if made on the surface. Han revealed his plan to the others, vague as it was. 
There are a lot of things that could go wrong, Hasty protested. Han agreed. The worst of which is getting sacrificed, which will happen anyway. How long until nightfall? She consulted her wrist chrono. There were many hours yet. They decided to rest. Chewbacca barked his game board move to Han, then settled down for a nap. Badur followed suit. Han scowled at the Wookiee, whose game board move was extremely unconventional. Just because we're going to be sacrificed, you're playing a reckless game now? The Wookiee flashed his teeth in a self-satisfied grin. Skinks appeared to be in deep conversation with Bollocks, using the obscure dialect the survivors spoke. Hasty had gone off to commune with her thoughts, and Han decided not to bother her. He wished urgently that the group could take some immediate course of action to dispel any brooding. None was available, so he settled into that, for him, most difficult of all tasks, waiting. The opening of the door brought Han out of a troubled sleep filled with visions of strangers doing terrible things to the Millennium Falcon. Then, abruptly, survivors wearing their extravagant costumes dashed into the quiet chamber, carrying glow rods and weapons, making resistance sheer folly. Their weapons were a fascinating assortment. Ancient beam tubes powered by heavy backpacks. Antiquated solid projectile firearms. And several spring-loaded harpoon guns of the sort the lake men used. Han's worst fear, that the survivors would use their anesthetic gas again and thus preclude any action on their captives' part, was unrealized. He found himself breathing easier for that. He had no intention of ending his life passively. With shouted instructions and gesticulations, the survivors herded their captives out of the chamber. They formed a forward and rear guard, keeping their weapons trained watchfully so there would be no opportunity for mishap. Chewbacca rumbled angrily through it all and nearly turned on one survivor, who had jabbed the Wookiee with a harpoon gun to hurry him along. Han restrained his friend. All the other survivors were out of reach, and there was no place to hide in the stone corridors. They had no choice but to move as ordered. This time, Han got a clearer impression of the underground warren. The corridors, like the chamber in which they had been held, were carefully and precisely cut, arranged along an organized central plan. Their walls, floors, and ceilings fused solid to serve as support. Thermal plates warmed them, but Han could see no dehumidifying equipment, though he was certain it must exist. Everything implied a technology in excess of what the survivors seemed capable of fully utilizing. Han was willing to bet these capering primitives did simple maintenance by rote and that the knowledge of the original builders had been lost long ago. He saw unhelmeted survivors for the first time, main-breed humans who, aside from an unusual number of congenital defects, were unremarkable. The prisoners passed heated, well-lit hydroponic layouts. The glow rods and thermal plates in them made Han wonder about the power source. Something suitably ancient, he presumed, perhaps even an atomic pile.
but Dewar's thoughts had been paralleling his own. Regression, the old man said. Maybe the base was built by stranded explorers or early colonists. That wouldn't explain their unreasoning shunning of the other Dalalshans, Skinks put in. They must have taken elaborate precautions to avoid notice all this time, even in these desolate. He was silenced when a survivor singled him out with the end of a beam tube, gesturing with unmistakable fury. Conversation stopped. Hans saw that Bollocks had been right. The Warren had clearly been built for many more people than now occupied it. In some stretches, light and heat had been shut down to conserve power or had failed altogether. They passed a room from which odd rhythmic sounds issued. For just an instant when he drew even with the doorway, Han had a view of the interior. Colored lights strobed in the darkness, flashing on the walls and ceiling in arresting swirls and patterns. Someone was chanting in the survivor's tongue. Underscoring the chant was the pulsing of a transonic synthesizer, as much felt as heard. Han almost stopped short and had to step quickly to keep from being jabbed with a harpoon, thinking, Hypno-imprinting. Crude version, but completely effective if you catch your subjects early enough. Poor kids. It explained a lot. Then they felt cold night air on their faces, and their breath crystallized before them. They left the survivors worn by a different door than that by which they had entered. The mock-up landing field was a different sight in the night than it had been during the day. It was now a scene of barbaric ceremony. The stars and Dalalt's two moons brightened the sky. Glow rods and streaming torches lit the entire area, reflected by the sides of the dummy aircraft. At the edge of the ritual field, by the steep snowfield that sloped to the valley below, a large cage had been erected. A pyramid of bars assembled piecemeal. Its door was a thick, solid plate, its lock in the center, inaccessible from within the cage. Near the cage was a circle of gleaming metal, broader than Han was tall, suspended from a framework, suggesting an enormous gong. It was inscribed with lettering of an unfamiliar type, consisting of whorls and squares alternating with dots and ideographs. Closer in, toward the center of the light, was a wide metal table, a metalab appurtenance of some kind. Near it, were piled the prisoners' weapons and other equipment. The implication of the table hit them at once, a sacrificial altar. Han was ready to make a break then and there. The pyramidal cage seemed firmly anchored to the rock, so sturdy that even Chewbacca's stews wouldn't prevail against it. But the survivors had been through this procedure before. They were alert and careful, with weapons trained in clear lines of fire. Han noticed that the muzzles and harpoons were pointed toward the captive's legs. If the scheduled sacrificees made any wrong moves, the survivors could shoot and still not be deprived of their ritual. This decided the pilot against any immediate action. There was still a chance his plan would work, provided Bollocks and Blue Max were flexible enough to adapt to circumstances as they arose. 
The droid was separated from the rest of them, complying with their captors as Han had instructed him. The other captives were chivied to the cage, ushered to the circular door plate that swung open on oiled hinges. It took every scrap of Han's resolve to enter the pyramid. Once inside, he stood there closely watching the survivors' preparations. The strange people were decked out in their finest garb. Now that he understood a little more about them, Han could interpret the survivors' costume. A ground crewman's blast suit had become, over generations, an insect-eyed getup. Spacesuit speaker grills had evolved into pointy-fanged mouths painted on imitation helmets. Communication antennae and broadcast directors were represented by elaborate spikes and antlers of metal. Back tanks and suit packs were adorned with symbolic designs and mosaics, while tool belts were hung with fetishes, amulets, and charms of all kinds. The survivors whirled, leaped, and tootled their instruments, striking finger chimes and drums. Two of them beat the great wheel of metal with padded mallets, the gongings resounding back and forth across the valley. With the prisoner's arrival, things began to build toward a climax. A man mounted a rostrum that had been set near the altar. A silence fell. The man wore a uniform festooned with decorations and braid. His trousers were seamed with golden cloth. He wore a hat that was slightly small for him, its military brim glittering with gilt work, a broad flashing medallion riding its high crown. Two aides set a small stand on the rostrum beside him. It held a thick circle of transparent material about the size of a meal plate. A log recorder disc, exclaimed Skinks. The others competed to ask him if he was sure. Yes, yes, I've seen one or two, you know. But the Queen of Ranroons is back in the treasure vaults, is it not? What one is that, then? No one could answer. The man on the rostrum regaled the crowd, delivering loud phrases that they echoed back to him, applauding, whistling, and stomping their feet. Flickering torchlight made the scene seem even more primeval. He's saying they've been a good and faithful people, that the proof is there with him on the rostrum, and that the high command won't forget them, Skinks translated. Han was amazed. You understand that garble? I learned it as Bollocks did from the data tapes. A pre-Republic dialect. Can they have been here that long, Captain? Asked the Chamber of Commerce. What's he saying now? He said he's their mission commander. And something about mighty forces afoot. The rescue they've been promised will surely come soon. I... Something about their generations of steadfastness and deliverance by this high command... The crowd keeps chanting, Our signal will be received. With a final tirade, the mission commander gestured to the pyramidal cage. Until now, Bollocks had stood to one side of the proceedings, surrounded by gray-clad masked survivors who chanted and rattled prayer clackers at him, descendants of techs entrusted with maintenance of machinery. But now the droid broke out of their ring, moving quickly to take advantage of the surprise he had caused. He crossed to stand with his back to the pyramid's door. 
The survivors, who had been about to fetch their first victim for the transmission, wavered, still awed by the automaton. The droid hadn't been able to secure a weapon, a departure from Han's vague plan, but felt that he could wait no longer to make his move. Even in the rush of events, Han wondered about the origin of the survivors' reverence for mechanicals. Surely there had never been a droid or robot through these mountains before. The mission commander was exhorting his followers. Bollocks, his photoreceptors glowing red in the night, slowly opened the halves of his chest plastron. Blue Max, carefully coached by the labor droid, activated his own photoreceptor, playing it across the crowd. Han heard shouts of indrawn breath among the survivors. Max switched from optical scanning to holoprojection mode. A cone of light sprang from him. There hovered in the air an image he had recorded off Skinks's tapes, the symbol of Zim the Despot, the grinning death's head with the starburst in each black eye socket. From his vocoder came recorded tech readouts from the tapes in the language of the survivors. The crowd drew back, many of them thrusting their thumbs at bollocks to fend off evil. Max put forth more images he had taken from the information Skinks had compiled. An ancient fleet of space battle wagons in flight against the stars. The brilliance of a full-scale engagement with exploding missiles, blaring cannon fire and probing lasers. Battle standards passing in review, displaying unit colors that had been forgotten long ago. The entire time, the droid was surreptitiously edging to the pyramidal cage's door. While the crowd was riveted to Max's performance, Bollocks manipulated the door's handle behind his back. A yell went up from the assembled survivors just as Bollocks succeeded in throwing the bolt on the stubborn lock. Blue Max had projected a halo of the war robot's cranial turret that Skinks had brought on board the Millennium Falcon. Max held the image, capitalizing on their response, rotating it to show all sides. The survivors jabbered animatedly among themselves, moving back from the frightening ghost holo. Bollocks stepped away from the cage door. Max began running through all the other visual information he had stored about Zim's war robots. Schematics, manual extracts, records of the ponderous combat machines in motion, close-up details of construction, and full-length views. All the while, Bollocks moved slowly forward. Step by step, the crowd yielded ground, seemingly hypnotized by Max's projections. In the excitement and poor light, nobody noticed that the cage door was now unlocked. He may not be able to hold them much longer, Han whispered. Bollocks was now at the center of a near circle of survivors. Time to jump, Badur said. Han agreed. Make your way to the edge of the field. Nobody stops for anybody else, understood? Hasty, Badur, and even Skinks nodded. Unarmed, they could do little except run from the survivors. Each individual would be responsible for his own life. Stopping to give aid would be suicidal and expected of no one. Han swung the door open slowly and stepped through. Shouting, gesticulating survivors were still occupied with bollocks. 
The mission commander had left his rostrum to try to make his way through the crowd to Bollocks, but was having trouble making headway through the press of his own people. Han waited while the others emerged. Chewbacca slipped through the door and moved off like a shadow. Badur moved with less agility, then hasty. Skinks exited and set off at once for the edge of the field. Low to the ground, he was nearly impossible to see. The Rurian didn't pause or look back. He adhered to Han's directions completely, having acquired some of the necessary makeup of an adventurer. Han moved around the end of the cage to bring up the rear. He nearly backed into Hasty. Where's Badur? she mouthed silently. They couldn't spot him at first, then made out the old man as he nonchalantly strolled around the edge of the crowd, heading for the abandoned altar where the weapons lay. No one paid him any heed. All of them were transfixed by Max's holos of a war robot being put through its paces, firing weapons, and lumbering through basic infantry tactics. He's going for the guns, Han whispered. Chewbacca, who had also paused, stood with them, watching the old man's progress. We can't help him now. He either makes it or not. We'll wait at the edge of the field as long as we can. He didn't know if he was happy Badur was trying for their weapons, feeling naked and helpless without his blaster, or dismayed that the old man was risking his life. Just then, a survivor sentry, coming in off his post, stepped out of the darkness and nearly stumbled over Skinks. The Rurian chirped in fear and went into reverse. The guard's eyes bulged in amazement at the woolly, many-legged creature. Then he fumbled for the flame rifle at his shoulder, crying out an alarm. A shaggy arm reached out, and the weapon was snatched from his hands. Chewbacca's fist shot through the air, and the guard was lifted, stretched out stiff as a post to fall on the landing field, his left foot quivering. People on the fringe of the crowd had heard the guard and repeated the alarm. Heads turned. In a moment, the shout was taken up by many voices. Han ran, took the bell-mouthed flame rifle, and slewed it in a wide, horizontal arc. A wash of orange fire streamed over the heads of the crowd. Survivors dropped to the ground, grabbing for their weapons and screaming conflicting orders at one another. Han could hear the shrieking mission commander trying futilely to bring order out of chaos. Badur, having reached the altar, was out of the crowd's immediate line of sight. He shouldered Chewbacca's bowcaster and bandolier of ammunition and began tucking weapons into his belt. Shots were now being pegged across the field at them. Keep out of the way, hollered Han, elbowing Chewbacca behind him. He backed slowly, covering the withdrawal and creating a diversion for Badur. He directed his discharges into the ground between himself and the massed survivors, making puddles of fire to spoil their aim and sending intermittent streamers of flame over them to force their heads down. A line of tracer bullets chewed up the field a meter or two to his right, and a pale particle beam barely missed his head. The escapees needed cover badly, but their section of the field was open and offered none. Chewbacca, with sudden inspiration, ran for the gong and, back and arm muscles swelling with effort, lifted it from its support hooks. 
his widespread arms grabbing it by two carrying handles welded to its back. The slugs, beams, and flames of the firefight dissected the air. The survivor shots were gaining in accuracy, though they weren't used to such a pitched battle. But Dur, running in a low crouch to work his way back to his companions, was spotted by the crowd. Somebody let fly with an old rocket pistol, blowing up a clot of stone in his path. In a frantic effort to change course, Badur lost his balance, and survivor's shots began to converge on him. Chewbacca grounded the gong in front of Han as he and the others took shelter behind it. Projectile and energy weapons splashed and ricocheted from the shield. Whatever the gong was made of, it was very durable material. Han blazed away at the survivors to keep them from pressing the attack against Badur. He had been spending the flame rifle's ammo recklessly and knew he might soon find himself defenseless. Badur, struggling to rise, was having trouble. The survivor's aim was zeroing in on him now, and he returned the fire as well as he could. I warned him, thought Han. Life debt or no, it's everyone for himself. He had trouble selling the idea to himself, though. Then the decision was taken from him. Issuing a deafening Wookiee battle cry, Chewbacca moved off, holding up the gong to protect himself. Han looked back and saw that Hasty and Skinks were watching him. The girl, he thought, would surely run to help Badur if he didn't. Don't just stand there, he snarled. Get the cover. He gave her a shove toward the edge of the field and dashed off the other way. Laying down heavy fire as he sprinted, zigzagging after the Wookiee. You crazy furface! he roared at his first mate when he had caught up to him. What are you doing? Playing captain again? Chewbacca took a moment from angling and maneuvering the gong for an irritated, explanatory growl. Life debt? Han exploded, dodging around his friend into the open to snap off a pair of quick shots. And who pays up if you lose us ours? But he maintained his fire side-skipping along behind the straining, gong-toting Wookiee and bounding from cover to either side of him to get off a shot or two. Flames lit the scene, and the air was smoky and hot from the firefight. The flame rifle's discharges were growing weaker, and its range was decreasing. Skirting a section of field torn and ruptured by the battle, they finally reached Badur, who was pressed down flat on the ground, shooting with the pair of long-barreled power pistols. Chewbacca heaved the gong between the old man and the oncoming shots. Han coaxed the last feeble flicker from the flame rifle, then threw it aside. Dropping to one knee, he helped Badur up. Last bus is leaving now, Lieutenant Commander. I'll take a one-way on that, panted Badur, adding, Glad you could make it, boys. Han snagged his own blaster from Badur's belt, and a sudden confidence steadied him. He stepped into the clear, crouched low, and let off a series of quick shots. Two survivor marksmen, who had been taking careful aim with heavy particle beamers, fell away in different directions, their wounds smoking. Han ducked back, waited a beat, then stepped into the open again on the same side of the gong, eluding the aim of those who had been waiting to see him emerge on the opposite side. His bolts dropped two more enemies from the ragged firing line. 
but survivor flankers could be seen in the wavering light, fanning out to either side in an effort to cut off retreat. Let's jump, Han cried. Chewbacca began backpedaling, still holding the gong, and headed for the field's edge as Badur and Han kept up the most intense fire they could, pinning down the survivors facing them and impeding the flankers. Their energy weapons lit the night, answered by bullets, blaster bolts, needles, harpoons, particle beams, and gushes of flame. Han occasionally assisted the Wookiees' progress with a judicious shove. Someone came toward them. Badur nearly burned the silhouetted form before Han batted the power pistol aside. Bollocks! Over here! The droid somehow made it to the gong's cover. They withdrew step by hotly contended step. A group of survivor flankers was nearly in position to enfilade them, crouching by the antenna mast. Badur held both long-barreled weapons up side by side and fired at the flankers. Men fell and the instrument shorted out. The mast's power supply was drained in a swirl of energy and the mast fell, wreathed in crackling discharges. It crashed into the rostrum and rostrum, frame and long recorder disc went up in flames. Han heard his name called. Skinks and Hasty crouched at the edge of the field. Firing and scrambling, the others joined them. We can't retreat down that snowfield, it's too steep, Hasty declared, and even Chewbacca couldn't carry that gong down. We'd make perfect targets out there. Han dealt out a few more shots, pondering her reasoning and their lack of alternatives. Then Chewbacca, surveying the situation, barked a quick scheme to him. Partner, you are crazy. Han exclaimed, not without a certain respect. But he saw no non-fatal alternative. What's keeping us? He pulled the others closer and explained the plan. They readied themselves, having no time for fear or doubts. Then Han yelled, Chewie, go! The Wookiee backpedaled to the edge of the field, whirled, stooped, and laid the concave gong down, its curved surface indenting the hard, icy snowfield. Han fired furiously. Badur dropped awkwardly onto the gong and grabbed a carrying handle. Bollocks climbed onto the opposite side of the rim, locking servo grips onto two more handles. Skinks swarmed aboard and clung tightly around the droid's neck, antennae flailing. Hasty braced herself next to Badur, and Chewbacca had to brace his broad feet in the snow at the tug of the gong's weight. Han still stood, keeping up a heavy volume of fire. He shouted, I'll pile on last. Chewbacca didn't take time to argue. He swept out one long arm, gathered his friend in like a child, and threw himself onto the gong. Shots from the survivor flankers crisscrossed overhead. The Wookiee's impetus and weight gave them a quick start. The gong gathered speed, spinning and sliding as it cut along the icy slope. Chewbacca lifted his head and uttered a foghorn-like hoot of elation, to which Skinks added a wee-hee. The gong tilted and rotated to the left as it swished across the snow. Chewbacca threw his weight the other way. They bounced and slid on a fairly even keel for a few seconds, then hit a small rock outcropping in the snowfield. They were airborne, 
all hands seeking a grip and flailing to stay aboard. To fall from the gong now and slide the rest of the way without protection would mean severe laceration by ice shards and shattered bones from the hardened patches and rocks. They came down again with a breath-stealing jolt. Everyone, miraculously, contrived to cling to the bucking, jarring gong. Han grabbed Hasty, who, in helping Badur, had nearly lost her own grip. The falcon's master encircled her waist with his free arm, while she clenched a handful of Badur's flight jacket. Badur, in turn, had locked legs with Chewbacca, helping the Wookiee steer by leaning and tugging at the handles. Chewbacca, like the others, could barely see. Their headlong speed through the icy air had stung everyone's eyes to tears and was numbing their exposed skin. In leaning abruptly to the side, the Wookiees succeeded in guiding their mad descent around a prow of stone that would have smashed them all. But in the process, he lost his balance. Bollocks quickly shifted his central torsional member and secured his legs around the Falcon's first officers. Badur held on to Chewbacca, too, reaching out with a free hand to help steady the Wookiee. But in doing so, he saw he was about to lose Chewbacca's bowcaster and bandolier. He cried out, his words stolen instantly by the wind. But Han was busy clinging to a handle and hanging on to Hasty and she to Badur, while Badur and Bollocks were committed to keeping Chewbacca aboard. Meanwhile, the Wookiee devoted all his attention to what could only in the most ludicrous sense be termed steering. And so Skinks, facing the fact that only he was free to act, released his grip on the droid with all but his last set of limbs. He was dragged around at once, very nearly snapped like a whip, reaching with his free extremities. Just as Badur's scrabbling efforts to hang on to the bowcaster failed, Skinks got close enough to grasp the weapon and was abruptly thrown in the other direction as the gong changed course again. The small Rurian now clung to his only mainstay, Bollocks, by the digits of his lowermost limbs, which clenched precariously on the droid's shoulder pauldron. But he determinedly hung on to the weapon and ammunition, knowing they might be needed badly and that there was no one to catch them if he failed. With each bump and rotation of the gong, Skinks felt his grip loosening, but he hugged his burden resolutely. One by one, he began to find purchase for his other limbs. Chewbacca felt him fumbling, shifted his leg as much as he was able, and Skinks managed to fasten two sets of limbs to the Wookiee's thick knee. They were at the steepest part of the insane plunge, shearing through the snowfield, rocking in furrows and smashing out of depressions in the surface. Several times, Han saw energy beams of various hues register hits in the snow, but always far wide of their mark. As targets go, we must be pretty fast and furious. He clung doggedly, fingers, ears, and face numbed by the cold, eyes streaming a constant flow of tears. My fingers are slipping, cried Hasty with unmasked fear. I can't feel them. Han knew with a sense of utter futility that he could do little to help her. He gripped her as tightly as he could, hoping that his frozen fingers would hold. Badur yelled, we're slowing down, Chewbacca bellowed pure joy. Hasty began to half laugh, 
half sob. The gong had reached a gentler portion of the slope close to the foot of the snowfield and was losing speed moment by moment. The bumps and jolts became less dramatic, the spinning less pronounced. In seconds, they were coasting. An excellent job, first mate Chewbacca, Bollocks was saying, when suddenly the gong's rim hit a slab of rock that lifted it into the air like a jump ramp. Frozen hands, servo grips, rurian digits, and wookie toes all lost their final struggle. The gong threw them free. Human bodies, the tubular skinks, a yowling Chewbacca, and gleaming bollocks sailed through the air on assorted trajectories, cartwheeling, tumbling, spinning, and falling.